Weekly Appellate Report for May 5th, 2017, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast featuring commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law news and trends and rulings. Today's show regards a widely followed issue rising out of the D.C. Circuit and potentially soon meeting Supreme Court review, the issue of net neutrality and the ways in which the FCC can and cannot regulate internet service providers. And we'll also hear about an environmental law case argued before the California Supreme Court in which the court once again grapples with the question of just what the California Environmental Quality Act demands of local governments and other would-be developers when they prepare environmental impact reports that forecast a given project's future effects on things like greenhouse emissions and the climate. So first we'll hear from Professor Stuart Benjamin of Duke University Law School. He joins the show to chat about the D.C. Circuit ruling for Monday, in which the appellate court declined to rehear on Bonkett's 2-1 approval issued last summer of FCC regulations that mandate net neutrality. Specifically, those rules classify internet service providers as common carriers, like classic telephone companies, and largely restrict ISPs from affecting the transmission of information from websites to internet consumers by, say, throttling the speed of such information or charging websites a premium to get their information to users more quickly. Government and industry has wrangled for for years over just how ISPs should be regulated, and those net neutrality rules went into place in 2015, but their clearing of this latest legal obstacle far from assures their finality. As Professor Stewart discusses, a Supreme Court appeal likely awaits, with a new Ninth Justice unfriendly to the type of deference shown to the FCC by the D.C. Circuit. And moreover, the FCC's new Republican chair, Ajit Pai, has expressed clear intent to rework the commission's rules and relax regulations on ISPs. In addition to analyzing the the legal merits of the competing sides here, including some interesting strands of First Amendment jurisprudence, Professor Stewart explains the strategy of parties forging ahead with a SCOTUS appeal, notwithstanding the likely impending rule changes. Then, Professor Deborah Sivas of Stanford Law School visits to discuss oral arguments heard yesterday before the California Supreme Court in Cleveland National Forest First San Diego Association of Governments, which regards a range of state laws and agency guidance on climate change mitigation and just how much those laws and policies demand of local governments completing CEQA environmental impact reports before undertaking large land use development projects. Professor Sivas, who wrote a amicus brief in the matter supporting the petitioners, contends that would-be developers must be more clear than was the, the governmental association here as to just how much a land use project will deviate from the state's long-term goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Professor Sivas will break down this complex case for us and assess yesterday's arguments. Before we get to my guest, though, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE Credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, let's hear from my first guest, Professor Stuart Benjamin of Duke Law School. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Professor Stuart Benjamin, the Douglas B. Maggs Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research at Duke University Law School. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be here. Okay, uh, so you penned an article for the Washington Post's Volick Conspiracy this week on a ruling out of the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals pertaining to an issue of fairly general applicability, the, the issue of, of net neutrality and the, the question of to what extent and in what ways the government, uh, in particular the FCC, uh, can regulate companies that provide access to the Internet. Of course, the, this case out of the D.C. Circuit could be on its way to the Supreme Court and a somewhat um, quizzical path. We'll get into why that might be odd that it could be headed that way. But um, first, I understand you do have some affiliation with the, the parties involved here. Could you tell me a bit about your background with the FCC? Sure. So I was on leave from Duke and full-time at the FCC as the 
inaugural Distinguished Scholar in Residence back in uh, 2009, 2011, but then 2014 through 2016, I was served as a consultant called a special government employee working, among other things, uh, on the net neutrality proceeding. So on the rules and then on the on the briefing in the case. So I was very much involved in this um, from the FTC side. So l listeners should understand that. Okay. And then perhaps from your, your boots on the ground uh, vantage point, you can provide a bit of background. I know uh, this is a term um, that certainly folks have heard more and more about over the past few years. It's gotten more political and popular attention, especially as the usage of the internet has become essentially ubiquitous throughout the country and really the world. Um, but perhaps not everyone knows exactly what, it, what it's meant when uh, folks refer to the net neutrality rule. So um, I also know that's sort of a loaded term depending on perhaps your political affiliations or which side of the uh, internet provider or consumer divide you're on. The term could embody either governmental regulatory overreach or it could just be sort of a regulatory framework providing a free and open internet. Um, so in your view, what is the term net neutrality generally mean and sort of what developments in, in federal policy and, and law and jurisprudence have led us to the point where this uh, suit um, ruled on, on Monday was, was filed? Great question. Let me start with the second half of that and then get back to the first half. Um, so listeners may or may not be surprised to know this actually arose out of regulation of uh, your landline telephones back in the 1970s. And there was something known as basic service versus enhanced. And basic was just the um, making of a call from one person to another, and enhanced was what back then were fancy things like voicemail. Um, and the idea was there's certain basic transmission, and then there are these additional services that get layered on top um, beyond this basic, uh, this basic transmission. That distinction got carried on through the Telecommunications Act in 1996, so there was telecommunications service, which was transmission without change in the form or content of the information as sent and received. That's a quote from the statute. Um, and then there were these information services, which involved transforming um, the information that was received, manipulating the information that was, that was received. And one big question from the get-go with the Internet is how to understand the provision of um, Internet service, what ISPs provide. The FCC initially did not answer the question, and in fact, the Ninth Circuit on its own said, we think this is understood as telecommunications service. Internet service, well, Internet service provider is just providing the um, connection for you from your computer at home to the website that you are going to. The FCC then weighed in and said initially, no, actually, we think it's an information service. It's not pure transmission. That actually went, that actually went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, um, six to three, ruled that it was permissible for the FCC to find that it was information service only. Though the majority made it clear, I, well, I think the majority made it reasonably clear, it would have also been permissible to have come out the other way and said it was a telecommunications service or, or it was both. The dissent written by Justice Scalia said, no, it clearly is telecommunications service. It cannot be treated as only an information service. So after that, the questions arose when it turned out that some ISPs had, without disclosing this, had throttled websites that they thought were using 
too much of their bandwidth. And so this, and this, I'm now, I'm now bringing this up to 2007. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern about that. And this led to a push for net neutrality. I'm going to skip some of the intervening legal back and forth. Um, just say the FCC issued some rules saying, well, it's an information service, but we nonetheless think we can have net neutrality rules. The DC circuit said, no, you can't do that if, if it's, if you're treating them, if, if you're regulating them as an information service under this particular title of the Telecommunications Act, Title I. If you want to really regulate them under net neutrality, you have to regulate them as if they were common carriers, as if they were like the old telephone company, like Ma Bell. Um, and the FCC then issued regulations in 2015 saying we are regulating them under Title II, saying they provide both telecommunication service and information service. And for that telecommunication service, we're now saying we're regulating them, therefore, as common carriers. It's the legal background. Now, what, is, what do the regulations actually entail? So there are some rules. They, for instance, ban blocking. So no ISP can block a website, you know, for competitive reasons. We're not talking for malware reasons, but, you know, you just, you, you don't want a, a, a website because it competes with your own. It bans throttling. So you can't slow down a website. Again, you just, you know, for, you're discriminating uh, against it. It also bans paid prioritization. So it doesn't allow an ISP to go to a website and say, hey, if you pay us extra money, you'll get to our users faster than others will. That's the real issue that really bothers ISPs. ISPs say, we have no interest in blocking. We have no interest in throttling. We'll lose subscribers if we're blocking sites and we're throttling sites. But we'd like to have the ability to be able to say, you know, we'd probably be willing to say this to every site. Hey, if you're willing to pay us a premium, we'll get you premium speeds to users. And the fear is the best um, capitalized sites with the most money will be able to cut those deals and pay those prices. And smaller upstarts won't. And so the smaller upstarts will load a little bit slower on your computer. You won't really realize it as a user. You won't think about it consciously. But just next time you go to look something up or you know, go to a website and you could go to the big established one of the upstart, without even maybe thinking about it, you'll go to the big establishment because it just seems to load up a little faster on your computer. That's really the crux of net neutrality for what particularly bothers ISPs in terms of the service they want to offer. I begin with all of that about Title II because what bothers them much more is being treated as common carriers under Title II because that opens the door for price regulation in particular um, which, as you might imagine, is anathema to them, having, their, having the prices they charge be regulated. And so that's why the Title II um, designation matters so much. I know that's a long answer, but I'm trying sure. to cover a lot of ground. No problem. There's a lot to get to here. So uh, is this, the suit is brought to, to challenge the rules. Does it, uh, what's sort of the scope of the, the claim? Who, who are the parties? What are they seeking? What are their arguments? Are they challenging both uh, the classification under Title II as well as the, the rules themselves? Absolutely. So the, the challenges were basically all of the big internet service providers. And the first most frontal challenge was we cannot be classified under Title II 
the thing, the only thing we provide is an information service. There is no telecommunications portion of what we provide. And therefore, you cannot regulate us under Title II for any purposes. Therefore, no, no fear of price regulation for us or, or, or anything like that. And so the entire theory of your net neutrality regulations uh, goes away because we simply cannot be regulated as, as having any telecommunications component. Now, they then went on to say, and even if we lose that, we also think that this regulation is unlawful because we didn't get sufficient notice um, of what you were doing. You didn't give adequate reasons for changing your mind. You had a few years ago said it was an information service. Now you're saying it's telecommunications. Under administrative law, you have to give good reasons for that. We think your reasons aren't good enough. Um, and some of the challengers, not all, said, and then separate from all of that, if you regulate us in this way, your, your regulation will run afoul of the First Amendment because we are actually engaged in speech when we transmit this information. Um, or at least it would be speech if we were to start charging some parties more and some parties less. And if you prevent us from doing that, then you're preventing us from speaking in that, uh, in that way. Okay, so a, a fairly wide panoply of legal arguments here. Some some interesting ones. <laughs> the um, briefs, uh, the, the total, the briefs, the, the short briefs were a hundred pages long. <laughs> do, do not doubt it. So the the DC Circuit ruled on this case last summer. Uh, the the ruling here on this Monday is a, a denial for a review on Bonk. So what was the the uh, initial ruling in this case last summer at the DC Circuit? So the DC Circuit ruled two to one that the rule upheld the rules in their entirety um, that it was a under administrative law as a court reviewing you are not being asked in the first instance whether you think what whatever agency does is the best interpretation of the statute the question is is it, is it a permissible interpretation of the statute and the answer was the court said yes it is uh, totally permissible to find that there is a telecommunications component to what ISPs provide and an information service component, um, and there, and then they went through the, the specific arguments. You know, having crossed that bridge, and we think there was adequate notice. They noted the opponents of Title II regulation um, made their opposition clear during the rulemaking process. So they had enough notice to know they should make those arguments in the rulemaking process. Um, went through other uh, other arguments. You know, it it was adequately justified. Um, in, the, in the FCC, and in fact, the dissent in the, there really did not actually argue it couldn't be interpreted um, as telecommunications plus information, so much as it really argued um, you didn't do a good enough job of responding to the economic arguments against it, that, that essentially a bunch of economists said net neutrality is a bad idea, and you failed adequately to respond to those, um, to those arguments. I'm highlighting this because the thing that the ISPs really wanted to win on is we can't be regulated under Title II, period, full stop. That actually wasn't the focus of the, of, of the dissent. Okay, so essentially a, a three to zero ruling on that point, whether it was okay to have them under Title II and be regulated there? Yeah, I mean, again, I, again, it just was not at all where the, 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 the dissent's focus. I mean, I, I mean, part of the problem was the dissent's argument effect was it was so you, you did such a bad job of justifying your economic reasoning that I'm, in fact, I'm, that's really my focus. But yeah, it, it didn't it didn't give a lot of support to the sort of to the broad argument. You just can't go there in the first place. 
Was the, the First Amendment argument uh, dealt with as well in the ruling? It was. And the majority said, um, you, if, you, if you can be regulated as a telecommunications service, as we've just held, by definition, by statutory definition, this is a, remember, I already, I already read this out, the statute defines a telecommunications service as the transmission of information, quote, without change in the form or content of the information as sent and received, end quote. If that's the case, then you aren't speaking. You are acting as a mere conduit. And so you are not actually a speaker. You are a transmitter, and therefore you have no uh, First Amendment interests. And the dissent did not, did not take that, didn't, didn't disagree with that part of the reasoning. Okay, and we'll unpack a little bit further as we go. The, the First Amendment strand here. Right. It's, it's the, it'll come up. Yes, it'll, it'll come up soon enough in the story. Sure, yes, yeah, that's the focus of, of your the article that you pen in the, the Washington Post. So uh, let's go ahead and, and f- move forward here to, to Monday. The, the parties, the petitioners, moved for an en banc rehearing, and Monday they, they were denied that, that opportunity uh, with two judges from the circuit dissenting. So I guess maybe starting off, what was sort of the reaction here? This was, as you say, a two-to-one panel ruling. It's a pretty major issue. Were you surprised that the, the full circuit didn't take, take a look? That, that wasn't a, a huge surprise, um, uh, to be honest. Um, and in fact, some ways what's, inter- what's interesting is, you know, we often think of these decisions that have, might have sort of a political valence. In some ways it's interesting. There were only two dissents um, from, you know, it, it was only two judges who were, who were dissenting um, uh, in this context. Um, but nothing about that opinion um, was, was, a, was a surprise to me, with the possible exception of the air play that the First Amendment argument got. Go ahead and get into that. Judge Kavanaugh was the one that, that penned a dissent that had a good amount of, of space treating this issue, the First Amendment question, and, and why these particular regulations might be a violation of the, the party's First Amendment rights um, to free speech. Um, first, to set up the context, the judge sets out some SCOTUS precedent, the case's Turner Broadcasting System, a familiar one to a lot of folks. Um, what was the First Amendment-related precedent from, from that case? So um, in... 1994, which, by, by the way, this is a case that was decided the year that Brett Kavanaugh clerked for Justice, for Justice Kennedy, uh, along with Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court um, ruled in a case involving cable operators, making a free speech challenge to a requirement that they carry broadcasters, television broadcasters, said um, that cable programmers and cable operators do have First Amendment interests because they transmit and edit speech. And you look at the key language, I talk about this in the, um, the Washington Post um, piece that you were referring to, it's quite clear that the key is not is that it's transmission plus the editing. That it, the point being, if listeners can remember back in the days when there weren't that many cable channels, the cable operators had to choose which channels they wanted to put on. And they also, when they had their own cable uh, stations, they had to choose what to put on that station, of course. And so those were editorial decisions. Those were substantive editorial decisions. Gee, what channels do we want? Do we want to have more news channels or fewer news channels? More sports channels or fewer sports channels? And the Supreme Court said, those are substantive editorial decisions. You are seeking to send a message when you make those, when you make those um, decisions. And so that was the key point in in Turner. Um, 
I'm, I'm just quoting there, that the cable operators and programmers, quote, engage in and transmit speech. I'm highlighting the engage in and because if transmission alone were enough, then they wouldn't have said that you engage in and doing it. The point is you're transmitting, but you're also engaging in it because of the scarcity requiring you to make these editorial decisions. So that was the key, the, the, the key holding in Turner Broadcasting. Okay, then Judge Kavanaugh, just some analogous reasoning here to apply that, that fact pattern, that situation, that rule to the case here. Take me through his reasoning and why he suggests that that, that ruling and that precedent um, suggests that the FCC violates the ISP's First Amendment rights here. Right, so the argument is, um, look, as, as, as he points out, it's the very same wire. So in the very same wire, you have a company, a cable company, that is sending television channels to your television, and it's ch- sending internet service to your computer. Um, and in each case, it has the ability to engage in an editing function. Um, it, it uses that um, ability in the case of cable television. It chooses which channels. Um, and they want to be able to use that ability in the context of internet service. That is to say, they, or at least they want to be able to have paid prioritization. Remember, that's, that's really what they most want. They aren't really claiming the desire to block, um, channels as much as to have the paid prioritization. And so, those are similar kinds of editorial functions, editorial decisions. And so, if they're similar kinds of editorial decisions, they're both speech for First Amendment purposes. Um, and therefore, the First Amendment is uh, is implicated by these regulations. Okay, but that is not an argument that prevails here. Obviously, the the petition for rehearing is is denied. Why, in the majority's opinion, and your own, is is that reasoning not correct here? So, what the majority says, um, and I've written articles saying the same, is the difference is actually as an ISP, you are just acting as a conduit. Um, you aren't actually making these editorial decisions. And crucially, by the terms of the statute and the regulation, by definition, you're not making those editorial decisions. That's where that statutory language I mentioned is, um, is relevant. This applies only to those internet service providers who are providing internet service without um, changing the form or content of what they are, um, of what they are delivering. Um, a point I didn't make in the Washington Post piece that I did make in the in my longer um, law review article is, um, if the if the Kavanaugh position um, were right, then um, then Ma Bell, AT and T, um, in the 20th century, with the best lawyers money can buy, never made an absolutely killing winner argument against all regulation of Ma Bell, which is oh we have the ability to restrict the way people make telephone calls in any variety you know we, again we, we can we can we, we can make some telephone calls go through better charge people more or less money so because we have the uh, the physical ability to do that we're speakers and therefore you can't regulate us as common carriers um because um we, we're speakers for first amendment purposes and so my gosh they they missed an absolutely devastating argument well the response to that is um, or maybe they didn't, because maybe the answer is you are operating under a, a regime that treated you as common carriers. You could be a different kind of carrier if you wanted to. You, could, you can provide other kinds of service, um, but that's not what you're providing. That's really the argument that I'm 
that I'm making here. And so a key element of this that some people have missed, and the regulations, the FCC's regulations are clear on, the FCC's brief is, is clear on. Um, if an ISP wants to provide a curated or edited Internet service, it can. And if it does, then two things follow from that. One, you're not a telecommunications service when you're providing that service. You are not subject to the net neutrality rules. And two, I think you are a speaker for First Amendment purposes. That's, this is me talking, not the, not the brief talking. Um, and so you can get out from under the net neutrality regulations. Then you might think, why don't they all do it? So here's my guess. My guess is that any general counsel who goes to an ISP and says, I've got a great idea. Let's provide an edited Internet service. You know, we'll, we'll say, we give you the Internet service that, that we think, the edited experience that we think you want. Subscribers will leave in droves. Subscribers will say, no, thank you. I don't want your edited service. And so as a marketing matter, it's just an, a, a deal killer for them. But just to be clear, if an ISP tomorrow says, we're offering this special other service, we're going to have a family-friendly service, um, uh, and we're going to you know, only allow the websites that we think you should want, or whatever, you know, it, could, it could be on a political basis, you know, we'll, we'll provide a, a Republican or Democrat-friendly service, whatever, then they're out from under the, the net neutrality rules. My own view is that they're speakers for First Amendment purposes. Um, I also don't imagine that they'll get a huge number of subscribers, but that's, that's not my problem. That's, they, make, they get to make that choice. No. That, uh, that more active method of internet provision here, that creating a, a curated service, as you say, um, makes it so the, the party, the ISP there, would take itself out of the Title II um, space and the area where they could be regulated more strictly and become a, a speaker more properly for First Amendment jurisprudence. Um, but as you say, that's not a particularly attractive option for uh, internet service providers that want to obviously provide users the internet experience that they want. But... There's another way that the ISPs will claim they are doing some action that creates uh, speech, and that, that is what you were talking about, the paid prioritization, charging different just content providers like Google and Netflix and such different prices for how quickly they can get their content to subscribers. Um, and I suppose their argument there is that that's enough sort of action. It's different than just the passive provision of all equal speed lanes, uh, that that creates speech. And so that rules like this one, the, the net neutrality rules, would be violating the, the free speech rights of the parties. What's your response to to that line of argument? Right. Um, I think. I mean, I think it's a very interesting argument. The reason I think it fails is, as we often say, I think it, it proves too much. Um, let me remind listeners: the First Amendment only kicks in when there is an abridgment of speech. Every Supreme Court pay, case has found that speech requires a substantive communication. And the question here would be, what is the substantive communication? The argument has to be, or is, by charging different prices, we are communicating something. If that is true, that is true anytime any company charges different prices. It is, it is in the charging of different prices that we are communicating something. And if that is right, then it's not just ISPs who would be communicating when they charge different prices. Um, it is the, your, your, the, the, the oil company. Um, it is the company that, that makes widgets. Um, and 
the, apparently it would be in the mere charging of different prices, we are now communicating something. I mean, if that's the case, we have just blown a hole through all economic regulation because now anytime somebody charges differential prices, they can say, oh, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm engaged in speech in doing so. In fact, if you really think about it, charging prices are all then. Because, you, you know, what if you give some things out for free and you charge prices for other things? Even charging prices at all then would be a, um, would be a form of speech. That would be the communication. And the problem is, but there's no substantive communication there. Now, I actually think it would be different. I make this point in my, in my article. If instead you were, um, char- you know, offering different service or service only to those you agree with. So think about FedEx. FedEx charges different prices, and if FedEx tries to argue that they are communicating something by charging more for one-day service than for two-day service, and therefore there's a free speech element to their, uh, their provision of different service, I think they'd be laughed out of court. But imagine a different company. I could call it um, RedX or Demex. So it's a it, red, you know, for uh, red is the, the political color red, and so RedX delivers documents only to and from Republicans, or Demex only to and from Democrats. And so you see this blue truck coming, and you know, oh, that's a Democrat communicating to a Democrat. Okay, now actually, then maybe you've you've got an argument that you are in fact um, engaged in speech in the business model that you have. But that's not what we're talking about here. They're just talking about you know charging different um, different prices. Again, I if that implicates speech, I don't see what I don't see what um, differential pricing doesn't um, implicate uh, implicate speech, which now means all, all economic regulation is subject to um, potentially devastating First Amendment challenges. Okay, then speaking about the next step for for this case in particular, what we haven't mentioned yet is that lurking in the background here is the fact that there's been a new administration and the FCC is now um, comprised of a majority of Republicans who have expressed an intent on overturning these Obama-era rules. So I suppose what's the – what would even be the point of taking this case to the next judicial level and trying to get the rules overturned if the folks in power intend to do that anyways? So this will be an interesting strategic question. At least a, um, uh, a couple of the of the people who lost this case have already said they plan to take it to the Supreme Court, and the reason why is pretty simple. It's part of the reason they opposed it in the first place. They never thought that Tom Wheeler was going to pose impose price regulation. They were f- fearful that Tom Wheeler's successor would impose price regulation. They regard Title II as a loaded gun that could be at any time, you know, picked up and used, used against them to, um, uh, to, in particular, again, <laughs> engage in this price regulation that would hurt their bottom lines. Well, the same thing here. So Ajit Pai is the, is the chair now, and he's even willing to get rid of the regulations, with, which from the ISP standpoint, okay, that gives us some breathing room. But a future FCC could then undo that and reimpose these regulations, and as long as this ruling stands then they get to they get to do that and they and we get to go back to to price regulation so you, you know uh we we are sort of one democratic uh uh president away you know one with a with an agenda you know with a, a more radical agenda than uh you know than obama's as he had uh away from a set of regulations that we think are terrible so um 
they may ultimately, it may be that some of them decide not to petition for cert because they decide cost-benefit is not really worth doing. But I have no doubt that they all would prefer that this, that this ruling go away. This is, this is a, a ruling the ISPs are not happy with. Interestingly, I think Mr. Pai, the, the FCC chair that you mentioned, he, he does note that some of the language in the, the D.C. Circuit's ruling could actually be helpful and that the, the circuit shows some deference to the FCC, meaning that when he does try to, to reclassify ISPs under Title I, he would be sort of have, have the stamp of imprimatur of the, the circuit in doing so and, and being able to reclassify it in that in that way. But do you think ISPs, once all the the columns are tabulated, would still prefer that that language is, is not part of the jurisprudence? Well, this is where, um, where the interests of the FCC and the interests of the ISPs wouldn't be perfectly aligned. So um, the current, uh, uh, you know, GPI and the ISPs are both in agreement to get rid of the net neutrality rules. But for the ISPs, there is no upside in having additional um, leeway for the FCC. For an FCC chair, there is some upside in having some additional leeway. You have greater... Uh, Greater authority, greater deference to your decisions, right? There's more that you can, you know, possibly do in lots of contexts. So, you know, you, it, it's certainly conceivable to me that in his heart of hearts, Ajipai would rather actually just get rid of, take Title II off the table because he thinks it's such a terrible idea. Um, it's also quite conceivable to me in his heart of hearts, he thinks, let's just leave this ruling as it is. It's, it's, it's great for us on deference to us, and it just highlights, um, that we have a fair amount of authority to do what we think makes sense. Okay. Maybe just one last one. If uh, you say the parties have expressed some intent to appeal to the Supreme Court, what do you think that an appeal like that might might, uh, might end up looking like? Do you think a cert, a cert grant would be likely? Uh, and if so, do you have any thoughts as to how the court might regard uh, th- these issues? So my guess is, my guess all along, even – you know, even assuming um, a Hillary Clinton victory, my class all along was the court wasn't going to take cert um, in this case, that it was going to not see any particular reason to um, to review the D.C. Circuit's um, um, opinion. So that that guess remains. We, we haven't gotten into the other half of Judge Kavanaugh's reading. Maybe here's a nice way of sort of ending this. I actually think if they take cert... It's not going to be for the First Amendment reason. My own personal view, as you probably have gathered, is I don't think that's a strong argument. The other half of um, Judge Kavanaugh's dissent is something that Neil Gorsuch has talked about a lot, which has to do with Chevron deference and when it's appropriate um, to, to give to an agency. I could conceive of that issue as one that would interest the the members of the Supreme Court, but I will still tell you that if I were taking bets, I would bet they're gonna um, they're gonna deny cert. That's actually been my bet again since the day after the the opinion came down. Yeah, you say there there has been some rumblings in the court relating to Chevron deference, and certainly the issue presents itself here. But we'll we'll find out soon enough if um, right. cert will be granted, what the what appeal will happen, and, and um, where this interesting issue will go next. Um, for now, Professor Stuart Benjamin of Duke Law School, thanks so much for being on the podcast to unpack it with us. I appreciate it. Happy to have done it. Thanks very much. Once more, that was Professor Stuart Benjamin, Duke University Law School, speaking on the 
net neutrality issue and potential Supreme Court review that awaits. Let's move now to my discussion with Professor Deborah Sivas from Stanford Law School on the environmental law case heard before the California Supreme Court yesterday. I'm really delighted now to be joined by Professor Deborah Sivas, Stanford Law School, a well-known figure in the world of California environmental law and a well-credentialed one, the director of the Environmental and Natural Resources Law and Policy Program at Stanford, the director of your school's environmental law clinic, and a senior fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're talking about a particular environmental law case argued before the California Supreme Court this week, Cleveland National Forest Foundation versus San Diego Association of Governments. Actually, one of three environmental law cases argued before the high court this week, so I'm sure you've had a busy last couple of days. Uh, with this case in particular, of course, as with a lot of environmental law cases, there's a lot of layers here, a lot going on. But the core of it uh, starts with a, a land use and transportation development plan that was proposed by the San Diego Association of Government. So maybe let's start there. Can you tell me a bit about this plan? Sure. Under a, a statute that was passed a number of years ago, SB 375, all metropolitan uh, areas are required to develop something called a sustainable communities strategy as part of their regional transportation planning. So all sort of urban regions do these regional transportation plans. And this, uh, this new component, the sustainable communities strategy, um, contains land use, housing, and transportation, uh, strategies that if you, if the, if the local government implemented them, um, would theoretically allow the region to meet the state's greenhouse gas emission reductions targets. And then so once that uh, community strategy is uh, incorporated into the regional plan, it really guides transportation policies and investment decisions going forward. So this case is about uh, is about that plan and in particular about the environmental review that was done when when Sandag adopted that plan. Okay, so uh, we'll get into more as to the particular state policies and and laws and guidelines that apply to plans like that and the environmental impact reports that are prepared in advance of them. Those reports, of course, are required under CEQA. Uh, I know another law passed in 2006, uh, AB32 factors into play here, and the the one you mentioned, SB375, also is is important in terms of the the proposed project here. What exactly is required by law of those um, environmental impact reports, and how do those other statutes play in here? So, so CEQA, of course, the California Environmental Quality Act, passed um, many decades ago in 1970, I think, is um, is California, of course, is California's bedrock environmental law, and it re- it basically requires all public agencies to evaluate and disclose the environmental impacts of actions that they take or actions that they approve. And it's really, that law is really intended to foster informed decision making and kind of a- accountability of public officials who are making decisions, um, when, when they, when they take an action. And, and ideally under CEQA, you know, not always achieved, but ideally, um, by assessing environmental impacts and in particular, and in, in, importantly, the alternatives or options that might mitigate those impacts, EIRs are supposed to, um, uh, positively affect agency decision making and kind of prompt agency officials to to look at the more environmentally superior options. So that's CEQA. So we've had that law in the books for for decades now. Then there's AB 32, as you mentioned. So that's I would say California's bedrock climate law, and that was enacted in 2006. And it requires the state to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, so focus only on climate issues, to reduce emissions. Um, back to 1990 levels 
by the year 2020, right? So it's trying to get, instead of being on an increasingly upward curve, that law is trying to get us to actually do some things that will reduce admissions and get us back to where we were a few decades ago. Now, pursuant to AB 32, California has enacted a a host of um, policies. They've got a scoping plan, and that scoping plan gets updated uh, periodically, and, and the scoping plan lays out policies that the state um, is going to use to implement AB 32 and try to achieve those 2020 reduction goals. Um, and, the, and, the, and in fact, the states adopted a suite of policies. We, we, in addition to the cap and trade program, which most people think of, that was the big uh, program. And, and if you're looking at the news, there's new legislation about that as well um, that's floating around. But uh, there were other pieces, many other pieces too. So, so we have vehicle mileage standards and zero emission vehicle standards. We have low carbon fuel standards, renewable port- portfolio standards, efficiency standards, and all of that is kind of the whole suite of of, 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 of climate policies in California. And the way these two laws come together with SB 375, lots of numbers here, but that requires these, these community plans, um, the way they come together in this case is that um, when, uh, w- when an agency is going to do um, a, a transportation plan and one of these community, sustainable community strategies, it, it first needs to do, that's an action, right? If you adopt a plan that says we're going to do this over the next 20 or 50 years, that's an action. So that triggers CEQA, it triggers the requirement that the um, that the agency go through an environmental review to, to look at the impacts of the strategy it's, it's uh, hoping to implement. So that was required as part of the SANDAG plan, um, this regional transportation plan with its um, sustainable community strategies part of it. So they had to do uh, an EIR pursuant to CEQA, and um, the big issue, or the big issue that was before the court, is whether and how that EIR would incorporate these um, AB 32 uh, programs and, and and goals that 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 are uh, at the heart of California's climate policy. Okay, now, in addition to those state laws and policies, there's one other piece here, an executive order from 2005, I believe, issued by mm-hmm. Governor then uh, Schwarzenegger, that also relates to the state's ambitions to reduce greenhouse gases. What exactly is, is going on with that executive order, and how does that factor into this litigation as well? Sure. So the executive order, as you said, issued by Governor Schwarzenegger in 2005, um, uh, had uh, set the policy of the state with targets for greenhouse gas emissions. So 2005, that was before AB 32, which was adopted legislatively the following year. And so the the executive order really set the frame and and actually got the legislature the next year to pass the, the the law that then um, put those goals into place. But what executive order, what that executive order did was it said first we're gonna we're gonna our target is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 2,000 levels by the year 2010, and then we're gonna go even further and by the year 2020 we're gonna reduce emission levels to 1990, and then finally. So, and that's what was, those 1990 targets were then incorporated into AB 32, and that's where the state went over the next several years. And then finally, the last thing was aspirational in that executive order was that in the longer term, by 2050, we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to 80% below the 1990 level. So, um, 
so that was the that was the sort of the policy direction from the governor's office, and that executive order still exists out there today. Nobody's revoked it, and it really is. But it is a, just a policy direction, so it's not a law that's passed by the legislature, signed by the governor. So in that sense, it's not um, binding on anyone, but it is the aspirational goals. And so that part of what's going on in this case is that the petitioners argue that. Um, that sets the policy going forward. You know, we're almost to 2020 and we're, we're on, you know, we're on roughly on target to try to meet the earlier goals. But this longer term goal is really important because it's really going to get us to actual reductions. And, um, and so that, that executive order is, a, is, has been, uh, an issue in this case with the petitioner saying, we, uh, you, Sandag, when you do your planning document, you have to think about that order. Um, and the, the goals of that order and, and consider that in your environmental review and whether you're going to be able to, what, in, whether and what you're proposing is going to be able to move us towards that goal. So that's how that executive order plays in. It's not a law in itself, but it's a kind of guiding policy. Then getting back to the development plan, um, you filed an amicus brief in the matter. What is your principal concern over the plan and what, what is, in your view is the, the main problem with it? Yeah, so, um, so the, the petitioners, the, and, and we, yes, and we filed an amicus brief in support of the petitioners, and the petitioners were basically arguing that, so Sandeg did a plan in 2011, and it was the regional transportation plan, it, it incorporated their sustainable community strategy, and they did that plan, and then they did an EIR to evaluate the impacts of that plan, and this case is really about the EIR, although, of course, the petitioners were unhappy about the under, um, underlying plan because uh, uh, be, because that plan for one thing it looked in the long term um, like there would be a lot more say freeway building which you know as 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 most of the studies show means that just brings more cars out onto the road and so um, so while the while the petitioners were concerned about the underlying plan the direction of the underlying plan that the challenge they actually brought was to the environmental impact report that was prepared for the plan and the the bulk of their challenge was or the issue that's before the court there were actually several things that were challenged as as in that EIR only one of those issues went up to the Supreme Court the other the court did not take the rest of the issues but the the one issue that the court was focused on um, and the petitioners were focused on is that the EIR in petitioners view and 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 we supported this in our amicus brief um, was a, was misleading to the public in that um, it seemed to suggest that the regional plan would actually contribute in a positive way towards the 2050 goals of, of pretty drastically reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And, but the underlying plan didn't, doesn't really do that. It does do some emission reductions up to the point of 2020, principally because we'd had this economic downturn and some of the early climate policy things going online. But then in the long term, between 2020 and 2050, the plan actually shows, uh, the projections in the plan actually show greenhouse gas emissions ramping up. And and the, so the concern was that it, the EIR that explained what was going on in the plan and the impacts from the plan was was misleading to the public and potentially to the decision makers um, about what this plan would actually do. And and so that's a you know that's an exercise in disclosure. But it also it also has the um, the, the whole point of CEQA is to get the public and decision makers to think, oh well, this plan is going to increase our emissions. Maybe we should think of some alternatives that would be less 
um, you know, less environmentally destructive. And so that was the concern in the case is that the Sandag should do a more forthcoming um, analysis of its plan and that would really show it isn't going to help us reach the goals, probably the opposite. Just to put a slightly finer point on that and to just distinguish um, exactly what you are arguing from what you're not. So um, what the petitioners in, in New York claiming isn't that the executive order has or is, is enforceable up to 2050. And so if the plan doesn't meet its goals, it's against the law. But rather just that by claiming that it might get uh, fairly close to those 2050 objectives and not doing that, the plan is, is misleading. And, and that's that's the point, not that it breaks the executive order. Right. Because the executive order, as we talked about, has no enforceable, there's no enforceability, there's no sort of legal power there since it's just an executive order from the from the governor. But that that's exactly right. The petitioners are saying, you know, we're not saying that you have to meet these targets that are in the executive order, but we're saying those are the state's policy targets. And so when you do this planning, and especially when you do the environmental review of what of, of, of what are going to be the impacts of your plan, you have to look at that target and think about if you're and and properly disclose whether your um, plan is going to help us get there. And and that's you know the, and that's the only way we're going to do it. If you sweep it all under the rug, then nobody really is going to understand how you know whether we're going to get there. So it's not so much that you have to get there as you should be planning and and doing your disclosure you know, guided by those, by that executive order and those policy goals. And one other point you make is that even if that executive order doesn't have any, uh, doesn't have any legal effect and isn't binding on these groups, uh, it's not like it was a one-time sort of thing. It, it sort of birthed the progeny of other climate-related uh, laws and policies like AB 32 that that are enforceable. And, and so it it's, has some sort of quasi-binding nature sort of in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as I said, uh, right, AB, AB 32 was the first outcome of that. And, um, and, and then, and then pursuant to AB 32, the California Air Resources Board in particular, some other agencies as well, but particularly the California Air Resources Board has been adopting uh, a number of strategies, right, to try to implement that. So to, the, the executive order is kind of the foundation. AB 32, the first law that gets passed to try to implement that executive order, then the agencies are, you know, do, doing a series of policy uh, and regulatory changes to get there. And then more recently, of course, we've had um, that we've had newer legislation. So in um, in uh, 2015, California enacted a, another bill, SB 350, again the, the number soup, um, which increased the state's renewable portfolio standard from um, what, we, what we currently have, which is you got to have 33% renewables by 2020, um, and increase that to say that by by 2030 we have to have 50% renewables. So this is our stationary sources in terms of power plants, and that all gets implemented pretty much through the California these days through the California Public Utilities Commission. So we had that law, which was spawned just in the last couple of years, and. Um, and, and then last year we had SB 32. So AB 32 was the, the, the mother, um, legislation, SB 32, 10 years later, which, um, set a new target of 40% reduction below, uh, greenhouse gas emissions below 1990 levels by 2030. So that's now inching towards the aspirational goals we've now written into a new law. 
um, that just went into effect this last year. And then right now there's a bill, as I think I mentioned earlier, floating on the legislature, SB 775, which would revise the cap and trade system and to try to get um, get that you know program even more aggressive. So we've had any number of things that have come out of kind of this original executive order. So um, and and the state trying to just keep moving in a progressive way to, uh, towards climate reduction. Okay, uh, maybe just putting into slightly more concrete detail the the problems that you have with the EIR. You, you say that it's misleading and and suggests when it really doesn't that it, it might meet, uh, for example, the executive order's 2050 goals. How does it uh, create this alchemy where, in, in your opinion, it it says one thing but it in, in fact would do another? Yeah, well, p- partly by some kind of misleading language. I mean, these things are complicated, right? So there are a number of tables and charts, and then some language. Um, in the actual document that suggests that um, uh, that 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 the Sandag plan would contribute uh, towards meeting those goals, when that that really isn't what's going on in the plan that they had they adopted in 2011, and and I think that's important because um, uh, because um, if you don't know what's, if you, if you don't know the real facts about, I mean, and again, these are projections, so future projections, there's lots of uncertainty built in there, but, um, if you, if you have a projection that actually emissions are going to go up, but you kind of leave the impression that, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing, uh, uh, pretty good on this, then, um, there's not much incentive to think about how do you, how do you look at alternatives that would be better. So I think in particular, uh, uh, the petitioner groups were concerned, as I mentioned earlier, about sort of more freeway building as opposed to putting the regional transportation dollars into more public transit and other, um, uh, other things that would, uh, you know, hope to bend the curve down a little bit on that. So, um, so even though it's just a, a disclosure document in that sense, an informational document, it, it has real impact on how the agency should be thinking about alternatives or what should be in the in the long term plan. Mm-hmm. An argument that frequently comes up in cases like this is um, the argument over feasibility and and whether it's too economically burdensome for environmental impact reports to be detailed enough to to show just how nearly it might cleave to a, a long distant environmental goal or you know, it's hard to project some of those things that it's uncertain for a group to do it. Uh, you address this argument in your brief. What uh, What is your counter? Yeah, well, for one thing, at the time that Sandag did this plan, um, and, and they did kind of, they have kind of said out there in the public and a bit to the courts, you know, we could, we did the best we could, could at the time. And, you know, there's lots of uncertainty. It's expensive and all of that. Um, but at the time that they were actually working on the 2011 plan, um, other cities or other metropolitan areas were actually doing a better job. And I remember when we were, uh, writing an amicus brief at the, at the appellate court level before the Supreme Court, um, looking at some of those other plans, Los, metropolitan planning in, Lo, in Los Angeles and the Bay Area, they were actually doing a much better job of it through, and so, so I don't think it was quite accurate to say that the analysis was, that, that for Sandag to say that it couldn't do the analysis for whatever reason, um, you know, it chose not to do it, which was kind of interesting because it had done um, its own sort of local climate action plan, which is a separate document, and where it had actually done a pretty decent job of that analysis, yet it didn't take that and incorporate that into the regional plan, at least in a way that was kind of transparent to the public. And it's not really clear to me why, you know, I wasn't involved directly in the case, so it wasn't, it's not clear to me why 
San Diego just didn't do it. They would have potentially avoided a lot of this litigation. But, um, you know, the attorney general's office during the that planning period wrote a um, uh, wrote to Sandag and said, there are ways to do a better analysis. You guys need to do it because that'll keep us, you know, we need to keep on track with meeting our targets. And the agency just said, well, the executive order is not enforceable. You can't tell us what to do. We're not going to do it right with that. So that was, I think, what was really drove the petitioners. I'm kind of speculating a little here, but drove the petitioners to file the lawsuit in the first instance is, is that, you know, you, 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 you did, we understand there's uncertainty and there's difficulty here and tagging local emissions to the statewide targets are difficult, but some other agencies are doing it and you didn't even make a good faith effort to do it. So I think that was kind of what was going on in the case. Maybe just to flag one thing with that EAR, it, it has been updated, I understand, since the, it was um, first completed in 2011. Does it have more details in terms of, of reaching those goals or, or not getting to the, the long-term 2050 goals? Yeah, so these planning these these regional planning agencies are supposed to update their plans periodically. I think at least every five years, if not more. And and Sandag, as I understand, it, has updated its regional plan, um, and I think did a new EIR for that update in 2005. And I personally have not looked at the updated EIR, or the updated plan, but my understanding is that they are actually doing a better job, and that uh, petitioners are and uh, are happier with what they're doing at this point, in part because they've incorporated some of what other municipal, other metropolitan areas are doing. Um, and in fact, I was a little surprised watching the, the argument this week um, that the question of mootness did not come up in the argument. Um, uh, and, I, and I was chatting with some folks afterwards about that. So the justices uh, seem inclined to actually decide this issue, but it, it's a little stale now because there is a more updated and better um, a better EIR. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose is the idea that were they to decide um, for petitioners that it would at least clarify and set the standard more f- firmly that um, as to what EIRs must entail. Yeah, I think that's right. And this court has evidenced an interest in both CEQA and and how CEQA interrelates with some of the state's climate policies. So I, I suspect that's why they took the case, um, that those two things were intersecting in this case. Okay, maybe uh, one more counter-argument that, that comes from the Sandag side, and it's also one that's sort of common in cases like this, is that a smaller regional organization like this in a, a big state that has these statewide goals uh, is concerned over, you know, doing sort of more than a chair. It's not certain how much it itself can impact the environmental statewide changes. Um, and so perhaps it's, it's not fair to, to hold them accountable for these long-term goals that are, that are statewide. What, uh, what is your counter-argument to, to that claim? Yeah, well, of course, and I, I think everyone acknowledges this is not easy stuff, right? And the, the science is changing, the modeling is changing, and even the standards are changing, right? We're trying to ratchet down. So so it's all tough, I think, on anyone who's working in the climate space. But um, but but I think that, and, and you're always going to have that argument, right? It, 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 when you get down to the level of individual projects, you know, you're a developer and you're developing your your housing project or whatever, you know, what what can I poss- what can be possibly done with respect to analyzing this project to tether it to the state standards? So that is always a challenge. But um, I would say that the sort of counter argument in this context is that. Um, you know, it, uh, transportation and land use is a big part of what we need to do. So we're, we're ratcheting down on power plants through the and other industrial sources through the cap and trade program, but um, we also need to kind of get our arms around land use and 
planning and particularly transportation. And so, um, you know, that can't really, that isn't really done at the local level. You know, you're, you're a city within a bigger metropolitan area. You know, you can have all kinds of great policies, but you're not going to really impact the regional planning, right? Regional public transit and building freeways and all of that. And so really the whole ball game um, is at the, at, at, we'll just say, and the state doesn't do that either, right? The state can set these targets, but the state doesn't really do land use or that kind of transportation planning, except maybe like the high-speed rail, but they don't do it at a regional level. So really in some ways, and I think this is why the petitioners targeted Sandag here, is regional um, transportation organizations uh, are, are really in the best position to, do, to to try to look at these things on a region-wide basis and try to implement policies that would get us in the right direction. And so so it's tough, no, no question about that, but, but in some ways... Um, these regional planning organizations are in the best spot to do it. Were the court decide for the petitioners decide that you support here? What, what exactly would that really mean? How significant would it be? As we've said, the question here isn't you know whether those 2050 goals in the executive order are binding. Um, so a positive ruling wouldn't mean that. Um, what what would it mean? Well, I think a victory for for petitioners at the California Supreme Court um, on again they only took this one limited issue. Um, if they affirm it, it would, it would, uh, again, kind of create some standards and expectation that agencies like Sandeg, um, really have to evaluate the consistency of their long-term planning projects with state climate policy. Um, and the, the, uh, the interesting thing is that the lower court, there were a number of other issues in the lower court related to air pollution, more generally air pollution problems, the failure of the of the document to evaluate um, uh, certain public health impacts, especially in neighborhoods adjacent that might be adjacent to freeways, failure to ad- adequately consider alternatives that might reduce the number of miles driven. So all those things were sort of they're related, but they're kind of separate issues. And the and the court of appeals um, uh, ruled in favor of petitioners on all those issues. And then when the Supreme Court took this case, it only took it on this narrow. Uh, so th- th- those rulings continue to apply because they were not disturbed by the Supreme Court and they only took this one issue. So if the petitioners win on this one issue, it would just mostly clarify that, um, that, that these agencies do have to look at the executive order, those goals when they're thinking about and, and consider it more explicitly and not be misleading in, in terms of when they update their plans. Okay, so irregardless of the result from the California Supreme Court, the, the case as a whole is already a largely a, a win, as you say, for the petitioners. But if the California Supreme Court does side with Sandag, what, uh, as you view it, would be the negative consequences? Um, you know, that, that's an interesting, so back to my point about mootness. I, I, it's, it's interesting because you've got this already superseding plan and superseding CEQA analysis that's, that's already been done by Sandag, I'm, I'm not sure it would have particular negative results in this case because Sandag's already kind of moved on. Um, I think that the, the missed opportunity if the court um, sides with Sandag on this issue would be to, to provide some more clarity uh, to, to, for, the, for other agencies going forward about what, you know, how they need to do their plan, plans and also the environmental review of their plans in a way that more explicitly, um, you know, gets at these, at these climate goals. So, 
Um, but I don't, you know, frankly, I, I mean, even though I was very interested in this case, because Sandegg's already kind of moved on, I'm not sure there's a huge downside, just maybe a missed opportunity for the co- court to clarify um, a little more. But, you know, the, as I said, the, the major metropolitan areas are using kind of state-of-the-art modeling for this. So um, I think many of the agencies are getting getting on board. So, you know, there might not be a huge downside. With all that said, one last one for you. You attended the arguments yesterday. Did you get a sense as to how the court might be regarding the issues and the arguments from either side? Yeah, I, I think it was clear that the court um, very well understands not only the purpose of CEQA, and they've done some recent other cases on CEQA, but also how it interacts with climate policy. As I said, they 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 seem to be very in, interested, sort of intellectually, in this I- issue, and so that and that that actually came out in the argument yesterday. Um, you know, they, there was a case uh, that the court decided uh, oh a year and a half ago, I guess, in the Newhall Ranch case, um, when, when they were faced with just a single project there, but a pretty large project, and 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 ruled in favor of petitioners who were saying your your EIR for this large residential project needs to think more seriously about greenhouse gas emissions. So they ruled in the plaintiff's favor there. So they're, they're clearly, you know, interested and in, and in, and in trying to figure out. Um, you know, h- how much an agency has to do to be enough under CEQA. Th- that said, I, I would say that, that yes, it, yesterday's uh, argument, the justices w- did seem somewhat sympathetic to Sandeg's, um position that, well, they did the best they could in 2011. You know, they're doing better now. They did the best they could then. So, um, so I, I think it's it's not it's not totally clear where where they might go with the decision, but I, I think there was some. Even though they un, the justices understood the issues raised by petitioners and had some sympathy, I also think they had some sympathy for uh, you know the difficulty of doing this and not wanting to put too onerous a burden uh, on on Sandag. I also think the fact that like Sandag, which is kind of a fact that's before the judges, is the fact that like Sandag has now done a superseding EIR may, may figure into their decision. Sure. They might help uh, buoy the equitable weight of, of their side. Um, yep. we'll, we'll certainly find out soon enough how this case shakes down. Professor Deborah Sivas, uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about it with us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And with that, our program for May 5th, 2017 is complete. Thanks again to both of my guests, Professors Stuart Benjamin and Deborah Sivas. Thank you as well for tuning in to the podcast. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that an hour of CLE credit can easily be yours for having tuned in. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>